Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. This is episode 3053 of the Survival Podcast. As we continue, what is either going to be a five-part or a six-part series, I haven't decided yet, on the design science of permaculture. Uh, these are being done as live streams on YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and everywhere else, and they're also be done as audios. I say this during the live stream today, but I'll say it right now up front, just in case while you're listening to this, you're like, damn, I wish I could see that. If you don't want to go sit through the whole video after listening to the audio episode, but you want to be able to see what I'm talking about in it so with a better understanding, in the show notes today for episode 3053 is a PDF down in the, the list of resources that you can open up, and it is the exact same deck that I use and talk about during the audio version of it. That said, this is one of those ones where you might want to look up the video uh, rather than the audio uh, because it is so visual-based instructional on permaculture design science. Today we're talking about a definition of permaculture. We're talking about sectors of design, earthworks including swales, ponds and dams, terraces, plowing and ripping, texture in the landscape. We're going to talk about evaluating a property through the lens of water access and structure and give you six more design principles. We'll do all that today. It's almost two hours long. It's full-on permaculture instruction, the type of thing you would pay for elsewhere, and I'm putting it out there like I always do at no cost to you. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Start9 Embassy Servers. I probably should have flipped it around and made them a sponsor yesterday, huh? Because we had... Uh, Matt Hill on from Start9 talking all about the wonderful things that Start9 Embassy servers can do. If you want to take back your digital sovereignty, if you want to actually have real privacy and you want to actually own your data and let, instead of letting somebody else like Google or Facebook or Twitter or all of the above, control your life, control your access, and control your data. You want to get a Start9 Embassy server, and they're such a great sponsor. If you buy one of their servers and you are an MSB member, the discount alone just paid for your membership. They're awesome. Check them out. If you want to know more, listen to yesterday's interview with Matt from Start9. Uh, next up, talking about money and saving money, how about investing money for the long haul and making good decisions with your money? John Pugliano is a man that I trust for advice on my investing. I think you should trust him, too. You can learn more about his podcast at WealthSteading.com. And John is one of us, man. John is not just some financial guy that said, hey, I want to sell, you know, market to your community. You guys know, John's been part of this community since, like, 2011. He's been on the expert council for as long as there's been an expert council. He's been on the show for interviews at least a dozen times. He's been to my home many, many times. He's a, a welcome friend. He's almost like extended family. He's a prepper. He's a ham radio operator. And he's switched on when it comes to finance. That's why it's called the Wealth Steading Podcast, thinking like a homesteader with your money, growing it for the future. Check him out at wealthsteading.com. And with that, let's go ahead and drop on into our live stream today. Again, if you need any help with the visuals, you can either go look up the archive of the video. That'll be in the show notes. Or you can get my entire PowerPoint deck. And this one is going to light you on fire in multiple ways. And we are live. I want to welcome everybody to the second in this series. There will be at least five 
uh, in a series long. I'm really thinking it may go to six because I think, I think I'm going to append an episode onto the lesson plan of uh, the eight forms of capital for uh, episode six of this. And I want to say a few things as I give people time to uh, come on board because when we start a live stream, it always takes a little bit of time for people to come in. If you're listening to this today in the audio, I'm going to do something for you I should have done last week and I didn't. Many of you, way more of you listen to the audio version of the show than show up for live streams or even go watch the videos once they're archived. And it may be the case that today's will have a few things in it that the visuals will really, really help with. So what I'm going to do for you audio only folks, I'm going to have in the audio notes and you guys on the video will be able to get this as well. Just click the link in the video notes about an hour after the live stream ends. I always have to say that. People are like, I click the link. It doesn't work because it's not there yet. Right. Uh, but I'm going to put up a PDF of my slide deck today. So if you just listen to this and there's a few sticking points, like I really could use some clarification. You can just toggle through the slide deck later on and uh, get a better understanding of some of the visuals that we're describing today, because some of this is uh, is really visually impactful. And it's why as much as I, I actually prefer audio as a producer, right? Not as a teacher, but as a producer of content, because audio is easier. Audio, I can hit pause and I can go eat, eat a snack and I can take care of my granddaughter when she's crying and I can come back and I can finish and you never know. Uh, video, I either have, if I'm going to do that, I have to edit or I have to power through like I do with these live streams. Um, but when it comes to certain things, when you're trying to educate, I think visuals are far more impactful, especially when we start talking about things like we're going to talk about today, because we're going to talk about sectors of, sectors of design. It's going to help some with the visuals, but we're going to talk a lot about several different types of earthworks, including things like texture, ponds and dams, uh, and the infamous swale. And I think having visuals for that will be really, really helpful, as will some of the visuals that we're going to use for our six design principles we're going to talk about today. And uh, one more thing is we give the stragglers a little bit more time to come in. I do want you guys to know that I am developing a full-on course that will not be free, um, and it will be on aquaculture, backyard aquaculture systems from, you know, Sweet Spot's going to be 300-gallon systems up to about 20,000-gallon systems. These are pond based systems. They're not aquaponics. Uh, I won't get into why of that today, but I'm also going to do something with this series. This series, even though you're watching it now or listening to it now, will go onto that site. will be a free course you can take on that uh, site to get a feel for how the courses flow and get a feel for me as a teacher. And while I think I'm going to put a lot more effort into the visuals in that course because it's a paid course, it will let you understand who I am as a teacher, what my teaching style is like, what my teaching philosophy is like. And I think that's important when you're looking to expand what you want to know that you find a good teacher that fits your style of learning. So hopefully I do that. But if I don't, I prefer that you seek a teacher that does. I just think that's the way to have integrity and honesty as a teacher. With that, let's dig on into this uh, this uh, this episode, which, again, is the second in at least a five-part series. If you didn't yet see or hear part one, you may want to back off and go do that before you continue here. Uh, with that, let's start off with something. Um, last time around, I talked an awful lot about permaculture. The whole thing was about permaculture. We started off with the prime directive and the ethics. Uh, we went through uh, the layers of the forest system. I dropped some really heavy and some light permaculture design principles on you. 
And I, I did, I didn't do one thing though. I didn't actually define the word permaculture. Imagine that introduction to permaculture. What is permaculture? I didn't tell you. Uh, it wasn't an oversight. I do that on purpose. I like the mind of the student opened before we get to this. Because honestly, if I gave you a definition and I told you what I'm about to tell you before you had your mind opened by that first episode, I don't know that you would really understand the impact of it. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if we start out with just the history and how we got the word, originally when David Holmgren and Bill Mollison began to work up the concept of permaculture, which led to the first book that they published together on this, which was Permaculture One, it was almost 100% agricultural centric. Now, they didn't do that because that was the master plan. They did that because when you're starting something new, you lock down one thing and you do it right, and then you add, oh, here's how we build housing. You, you don't go initially with a brand new thing that's not proven in the world, that's not understood in the world, that has no brand association, and just start going, we're going to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. You, you start with a thing. But by the time Permaculture One actually went into publication and came out, even though it wasn't really in Permaculture One, Mollison had already switched to de defining it as permanent culture. So permaculture are techniques by which, tactics and techniques and philosophy by which we develop a culture that it can exist in permanence. That means it doesn't go away. And what I would say is, for instance, if you look at every civilization that was ever built up on the back of annual cropping, and that was its primary way that it fed its citizens is annual cropping, that civilization eventually collapsed. You can't have a permanent culture if the culture itself collapses. And so it's not that annuals are bad. We talked about that. Permaculture doesn't mean annuals, right? Permaculture uses multi-systems when it comes to the agricultural side of things, including perennials, and uses polycultures and stuff like that. But it's also about how do we heat our homes? How do we take waste and convert it into something useful, et cetera? But if you ask 12 permaculturists to define it, you'll get 12 different answers. And as long as the person you're talking to actually is a permaculturist who's, who's actually worked uh, on this for, for any good period of time uh, and actually has done the research and, and gotten practical beyond just drawing things, actually went out and did it and accepted feedback and followed principles and followed ethics, it doesn't matter that their definition's different. It's probably going to be correct. And so what I want you to understand about the definition I'm giving you, I'm not saying it's better or it's right or it's more correct. What I'm actually saying is just this is how I explain permaculture as a definition. I call it a design science that utilizes living and engineered components to create self-replicating systems that provide for all human needs while adhering to a simple set of core ethics. Now, it's, it's, it's easy When you say something like that, to just make it an academic definition and let it just be what it is as that academic definition. But what I ended with is, is you know, founded on core ethics and principles, right? And that way I don't have to say that makes nature better or that doesn't damage living systems or that improves nature or whatever words that somebody else might use. And this is why I say I like to drop this in my second in a series of lectures if I'm giving an intro course. Because if we already know the ethics and the prime directive, then that definition not only makes sense, it's way more impactful than that number of letters and words could be by themselves. And there are people in permaculture who have decided uh, that 
they prefer not to bother going into the ethics because it, it drums up some political animosity between groups or, or whatever reason they give. I, as I explained last week, I find the ethics to be the most important anchor to all of permaculture. Without them, we don't have permaculture. Asking me to teach, especially an introductory course on permaculture without anchoring with the ethics would be like asking someone to teach an introductory course of the Bible and leave Genesis out. I, I think there's a reason that Mollison and his folks put the ethics and the prime directive literally in the front of the book. And so understanding that and going into the idea that we want to build systems that are self-replicating, I think is very, very powerful. And I think that I want to take a turn here. I've never actually taught this this piece of permaculture this way before. But before we get into sectors of design and earthworks and permaculture principles, I want to talk about design and how this, and I've been trying already to make sure that you guys understand this as we go through. Permaculture is not just how we design a backyard or a home. It's not just how we design systems that provide us food. It's how we design systems that make any other system more powerful and self-replicating. And one of my laws of life, one of the things I've tried to teach anybody that I've gotten close enough to to teach at any capacity is if you don't design your own life, you will live the one already designed for you. Uh, Noam Chomsky said the indoctrination is so deep that educated people think they're being objective. Chomsky's a guy worth digging into. You won't agree with everything he says, but I'll say this. Whenever I quote somebody, like, did you know that he this or he said that or whatever? You know, if I'm only going to quote people that I agree with 100%, you're going to get really bored because I'm only going to quote myself. And that's how most people are. So this is a dead-on accurate quote. We've been indoctrinated so much in our education system that we've been convinced that that which is not normal is normal. And that leads to us living a life that somebody's designed for us. So the principles I'm teaching you today can make a difference in your life beyond growing a garden in the backyard, beyond doing a sector analysis of where a fire risk comes for on your property. They can be used in your business. They can be used in your life. They can be used in your educational path. They can be used in your parenting. They can be used in your interpersonal relationships. And there's really nothing they can't be used in. And this is, I want to show you what the alternative is. When I show an image like the one on the screen right now, which is just typical American suburbs, one story, three to four bedroom houses laid out in rows on streets with very small backyards backed up against each other, very common street layout. If you go to Google Earth and you start zooming in on major cities, you'll see this pattern repeated all over the place, everywhere the place, everywhere you go, it'll be the same but different man in the words of Tommy Chong. And what I mean by that is if you go into New England, there might be older homes. Their yards might be a little bit bigger. They might be more of a colonial style or gable roof or something like that, but it'll be the same. If you go into the West Coast, it'll be a little bit different. This looks very Midwest, South Central, Texas over into uh, newer areas of like Louisiana over into Florida. That's what this one looks like, but they're all the same. Now, when I put this up, what permaculturists think, oh man, look at all those people crammed in there. That's too tight. It's an over, it's an over, over, it's too many people. We're breaking the, the uh, third ethic. We're not limiting population and consumption, right? Um, that's not why I put it up though. It's the sameness. 
if you are a middle class person living in a part of the country where this is the way suburbs look, this is how you're going to live unless you do something about it. And if you want to live that way, it's okay because it'd be great if like right in the bottom corner there, that was a permaculture lot. I love urban permaculture. It's one of my favorite things in the world. But that's where you're going to live, and it's going to look just like that. This is a very young suburb. You can tell there's not many trees there. But eventually, all these houses will probably have one little lollipop tree in the front, maybe one or two lollipop trees in the back. Not very big yards, so probably not many pools. If a little bit bigger yards, there'd be a pool about every fourth or fifth one. Um, little shed. Everybody's the same. Why? Because the pattern is set. And we'll talk more about the pattern being set when we get to the end of this section. But this is how you're going to live. And you're either going to live a little better or a little worse in the quality of the home and the quality of the neighborhood. But without design, that's how you're going to live. Next, have you ever wondered how do insurance companies make so damn much money? Life insurance companies. Because what they're doing is they're taking a bet. The bet is you're going to die after you pay in more than they're going to pay out. That's the bet. Now, if you had a life insurance company and you insured like five people, you'd probably go bankrupt. Not just because of a lack of volume, but because you're probably going to be with that small a number wrong on average is enough. You're not going to be able to charge enough and you're going to end up paying out more than you take in. And that's not sustainable, right? It's certainly not regenerative. But if you don't take control of your life, we can even tell you about when you're going to die. And for those that are, are not looking at the graphic, this is men and their age at death on average. And you'll see that you have three really high points in the graph. Uh, let me zoom in on that a little smaller on my screen than y'all's probably. Um, but they're gonna, th you're gonna see that the mo most majority of deaths occur between 50 and 89. And the vast majority of deaths, you know, the highest peak in the 10 year average is 70 to 79 for men in America. Now, if I'm a life insurance company, this is great. All I gotta do is design my policies. To expect that a smoker, somebody that doesn't take care of himself, somebody on a lot of medications is, is probably going to die in that 60 to 69 demographic. People that take basic care of themselves are only on one or two pharmaceuticals. Um, they have good numbers on their medical tests and all. They're not smokers. They're not heavy drinkers. They're going to die somewhere in that 70 to 79 bracket. And honestly, if you make it over 79, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the insurance company at all. It might matter to you and your loved ones, but they don't care. Anything after that's gravy. They've made their money and they're happy. That's all you got to do. And what does that mean? That your life has been designed right down to the point that we can tell you when you're going to die. Next, this is really important, guys. Really, really important. Income. And this is where you can see the biggest difference in things. From those who designed their life to those who didn't. This is, as of 2020... Earnings and unemployment rates by educational attainment, if you have a high school diploma only, that's me, by the way, um, you will have a median usual weekly earning right now in America of about 780 bucks. And your unemployment rate will generally average in the nine percentile range. So high school grad, you can expect about nine percent of your life to be unemployed and you can expect to make about 780 bucks a week. And that's a median, so there will be people much lower and much higher in there. And if you want to get up into a range where you're making, you know, close to $2,000 a week, you need, according to the, the planners, a professional degree or a doctoral degree. And a master's degree, you can expect to earn about $1,500 a week. These numbers are valid. 
and they're also invalid. And I want to talk about how, how can they be invalid and be valid at the same time? Well, did you design your life or did you live the one designed for you? I make more money than any average on that graph period. Okay. And I always have since the time I was about 25 years of age. By the way, that graph starts at 25 years of age. They, they pushed out all the people prior to 25 to get better looking numbers. So I've been at the top of the earnings bracket, inflation adjusted, of course, since I was 25 years old. What's the difference? The difference is that I did not live the life I was told to live. I didn't do what they said I was supposed to do. But long before I understood permaculture, I understood the power of lifestyle design, and I took control of my life. I'm just suggesting that maybe you would want to do that as well. Let me get a better image there for you. Moving on, this is, well, when you think you're going to retire versus when you retire. Uh, as of 2014, the average person thought they would retire by 62 and actually retired at 66. These numbers continue to go up. This is the most current graph I could find quickly yesterday. I was putting this together for you guys. Um, but they go up and up and up. And it's an interesting little peak there at 67. That's actually the age that if you live a reasonable time after you retire, say 20 years or more, 67 is the sweet spot where you'll draw the most out in unemployment, or I'm sorry, social security. So that was designed too. Like they've literally designed what age most people will retire. It's up to you if you want to live this plan, this design that they have designed for you, or if you, you know, maybe you want to live your own design, starting in your own backyard, building your own systems that provide your own food, higher nutrition, learning how to think, learning how to design. That's all part of this. It's not just about building a pond in a swale or water access and structure that we're going to talk about today or the design principles of how you put a garden in the same principles I do I used to manage a garden, to design a garden, to put the garden together. I can use to manage a business. And we're not going to dig into that today, but I want your mind there. Because in this course, since it's introductory, this is not a mini PDC. It is, by the end of this, you're not going to be able to go out and start designing properties all over the world. That's not what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to open your mind as to what's possible. It's supposed to open your mind into what you can make happen for yourself. And the difference that you can make if you take control versus leave control and decision making to somebody else and make smart decisions about it. So when we look at designing a property, what we want to do is we want to examine energies on that property. Now, I'm not talking about let's all think about our navel and hum and put our hands up in the lotus position with our legs crossed and contemplate our navel's energy. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying... I'm talking about real energy that you can feel and see in everyday life, right? And we're not talking about subatomic particles or spirit or whatever. We're talking about things like winds, the sun, water, pollution, views, fire, wildlife corridors, and anything else that you can think of. When you look at a property and you're like, okay, I want to start designing it. We need to start to establish some restrictions and some intelligent decisions, just like if we were designing a career path, right? We don't want to just say, I can be anything I want to be. You're going to be, probably be nothing and aimless unless you figure out some path you want to take. And if it's not, I know the thing I want to do. I know the skills I want to develop, right? So I'm going to put 
an analysis on that. I'm going to develop a set of skills, and I know those skills are going to transfer to other things if I decide I want to do something else in my life. We look at a property, we kind of do the same thing. We already have the ethics, right? We already have the prime directive. Those are our original restrictions. Now we have the, the dimensions of the property. I can do more with a 10-acre property than a one-acre property. We have fences, right? We have boundaries. Maybe we have certain rules that are local, that are governmental, that are almost as hard to change as moving a mountain. But then we also have these energy flows. If we have really harsh winds, then we need to think about, if we're going to do annual gardening, where are those winds the most harsh in the spring when I'm putting the itty-bitty plant in the ground and all of a sudden it's whipping in the wind like like a flag on the side of a car? Because that's what happens. People get into gardening. They put the garden in the back because it's out of the way, right? It's out of the way. It's the perfect place for it. They line it up with the fence because the bed looks good lined up against the fence. No real reason. No idea north, south, east, and west. The bed goes in line with the fence, so it looks neat, and it's easy to mow the lawn. Okay, it's a reason, but is it the best place for it? You don't know. So now you have heavy winds, let's say, coming out of your west in your spring. You're new to this, so you follow my advice. Instead of trying to learn everything, you go down to the nursery and you buy some plants. And you come home, you put your little pepper and tomato plants in. And then the March, late March, early April winds come and, and just beat your plants to death. Why? You didn't even take that into account. So now if you're like me, the first time I ever did it when I was a new gardener, you're out there propping up plywood or something trying to create a windbreak. Wouldn't it be better if we built in those windbreaks right from the beginning because we looked at where our predominant winds were at the time that they were going to be most damaging. Additionally, we're growing a garden. We want to keep moisture in the soil. What does wind do? It erodes soil, also pulls moisture out of the soil. So we want to look at that sun. If you're in Pennsylvania and you put your garden in full sun all day long and you're growing appropriate plants for that, you're probably going to have great results, assuming everything else is good. If you do that in Texas, you're probably going to scorch and burn your plants. And even if they do well, they won't do as well as they could if they got some relief in the afternoon. East sun, afternoon shade, beautiful in some climates, not the other. It's important to know, where is your solar track? There's a there's an app called Sunseeker. And if you download that for your iPhone or Android or what have you, you can actually see where your sun is all year long. But certainly places to look, winter solstice, summer solstice, spring and fall equinox, and you can make a pattern map of your sun. Water. Now, obviously, we're concerned about water from a standpoint of being able to irrigate and stuff like that, but I'm really talking more about how water flows across your property. So what's the terrain, and what does that mean? Do you have an erosion zone that you need to do something about? Does water basically, are you mostly flat, and water just kind of spreads out, and you'd maybe like to spread a little bit more with the earthworks we'll talk about later? You have a low-lying spot. Right. Does that form? Does it have does it have an opportunity to become a pond or a natural marsh? So we want to look at that pollution. People think of pollution as just being like chemicals. Chemicals. Yeah. What about noise? What about noise pollution? Is there is there stuff around you and you think, well, I know what I'll do. I'm going to plant a row of trees and it'll stop the noise. It probably won't. Um, If you plant several rows of trees, so that they're baffle-like, they probably will reduce noise some, okay? But it's probably not going to stop stop it altogether. We might need to think about some other design considerations in dealing with noise. 
um, it's actually easier to mask noise than stop it. So a water feature might be located in the proper place. We're recirculating water with a fountain. The, the sound of water running, if it's, if it's more prominent to the listener than the sound of traffic, will kind of push the track. It's like white noise pushing the, the bad noise in, into the distance. Chemicals? Yeah, sure. Is there something wrong on the property or is it somehow damaged? But what about runoff? That's our big thing. If we're close to a, a, a big farm that uses chemicals, Where's the runoff come from? Or where's the, where's the drift come from in the wind when they spray? Or if we have a neighbor in suburbs and we have a neighbor that's using true green chemlon, how does that affect our property? You can't tell your neighbor not to do that. What you have to do is you have to design solutions into it. Uh, potential runoff as well. Like, could I create runoff with one of my other design decisions? We need to analyze that view. Good views and bad views both. If it's an ugly view, then I want to either obfuscate it or cover it up. If it's a great view, I don't want that to go away. I don't want that to go away. I don't want my view to go away. I want that view. Maybe I actually want to enhance that view. Here's a story about enhancing view that's it's more of an interior design thing. I learned about this from Dave Jackie. He was doing a design for a client that had a beautiful cabin in the mountains. And he just so happened to have needed to use the bathroom. And the guy said, go use the bathroom. So he goes in the bathroom. He's using the bathroom. And when he's done, he washes his hands. And like anybody, when you wash your hands, you kind of bend down. Unless you're really short, you bend down to the sink. As he bends down to the sink, he realizes instead of a mirror in front of the sink, like you usually have, there's a window. And you can see out the window standing up, but not really. It's when you bend down and you naturally look out the window like what's out there. And in the distance, there was a little lake up in the mountains, one of those crystal blue Colorado lakes. And just as your hands touched the water, you saw the lake. That's enhancing a view. You're literally creating a connection between what's being visually seen and what's being physically felt. That's going beyond what most people will ever do. But those are the things I like to open you up to. So we want to enhance the views. Fire. You know, people think, well, you know, the best thing for a fire is a break. If there's nothing for the fire to burn, then it won't advance. If it's low, dry grass in the dry season, it'll really fast advance across the break. You know what actually is really hard to burn? Mature hardwoods. Mature hardwoods. I remember Bill Mollison talking about this in a lecture, and all the students laughed. He said, a walnut tree. They all laughed at him. He said, really? Get a match and go try to light one on fire. Mature hardwoods. Not dead hardwoods, mature hardwoods are, are good elements of design to slow fires advance. We're not going to get deep into that, but you might want to know that. And you might want to look at where are the most prevalent dangers from fire. If they're on your land, then we can eliminate them or change them or modify them in some way. If they're in somebody else's land, if you're looking on national forest that's poorly managed, like most national forests, and you live uphill, from a stand of trees that's on National Forest that has a lot of dying trees in it. I've seen that all over the place, and they don't want to take the dead trees down. Colorado's a great example of this. You have all these trees that are dead because of the fungus from the blue the blue beetles, and uh, or the pine beetles or whatever they call them, the blue fungus. And it, if you're uphill from that, that fire's going to rush uphill. You need to do something to mitigate it. And wildlife. Do you want wildlife? Do you want to discourage or do you want to encourage wildlife? Everybody sees the wildlife as the, the enemy of the garden. What if we create a corridor and we enhance a corridor that naturally moves the animals through and we plant things for the deer 
And we put the garden in a place that is not a place the deer are going to be comfortable because maybe there's more activity in dogs there. So we want to understand all of these. And as we look at this, we can get, we can do a lot of different ways that we do sector design maps. And when you look at projects that people do in their PDC courses, it's one of those things that, um, well, people put a lot of artistic effort into. And I think that's a good thing if you're doing it for a client or if you're the kind of person that really wants to see it this way for yourself. You can see in this one, they just use a color code and they did a drawing of the home, the outline of the home, the summer sun, the winter sun, noise sector, wildlife sector, summer winds, all the stuff we just talked about. Here's another example of one. This is kind of how I prefer to do this. This person took an image of the property off Google Earth, printed it out or used a computer, more likely as straight as these lines are, and created their sectors. And for those that can't see it, it's just simply that we have laid out in a relationship where we have a semicircle on the outside of the cone coming back into the property. And that just tells us how that energy mostly flows or moves across the property. Uh, all of these methods work. And my bigger thing, though, is I don't know that you really need to do it to that level if you're only doing it for yourself on your own property. The more important thing is to walk your property and understand all of these potential elements, certainly transcribing them into an image, especially if you're a very visual person helps, but a notebook that just basically says my winds in the fall are primarily from the east and my winds in the winter are primarily from the, 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 the northeast and my winds in the spring are primarily from the southwest or whatever it is, is generally going to be enough for you to be able to make important and, and correct design decisions. And the smaller your property is, the easier that will be. But it's definitely something that we don't want to ignore. And we need to think beyond. We put the garden in the back because it lines up with the fence and it's out of the way of where the kids play football. Being out of the way of where the kids play football, great. Absolutely a design element decision. Recreation is part of our design, no doubt. But we want to put it in the back so we don't see it. That's a bad idea. First of all, because of all the things we just talked about, but second of all, because what you don't see, you don't take care of. It'd probably be better, probably, every design's different, to bring the garden very close to the dwelling so that it's right there. So when it's cold in the fall, but your herbs and your parsley and all that stuff is still going good and you're making stew, instead of reaching for the dehydrated parsley, because you don't want to walk in the mist and the rain all the way to the back of the property, you step out into your zone one and you harvest your fresh herbs, and now we're designing our life and our lifestyle and our yard because we're tonifying ourselves with fresh herbs, right? That's how you start to see all of this stuff integrate together. Where we're going next, we're now going to move on to earthworks. This is where a lot of people really want to start with permaculture because somebody shows them a food forest built on swales. And the swale is a wonderful, wonderful design element, and it's probably the most often inappropriately used and most misunderstood earthworks element that there is. So I want to start off with, well, one of my, one of my real mentors, Dave Jackie. Sorry about that, guys. Um, when, when I did a workshop with him, he said that even though he wrote, he and, uh, Jonathan, uh, Eric Tosenmeyer, wrote probably one of the most comprehensive books on plants that's ever been written, uh, Edible Forest Garden, specifically the second volume of that, uh, covering zones and planting times and everything you could 
every piece of information they could dig up about those plants is always remember plants don't read books. And just because the book says it doesn't mean it's going to be the way that it works. Swales work a lot that way, too. This is a common style of image of a mature swale. So we have basically a, di- a swale is a ditch on contour or slightly off contour. We're going to stick with on contour for, for today. That means that the ditch is level in the bottom and the, and the downgrade side perfectly level as far as it goes. It can be a very big ditch, nine meters. It can be a small one, three feet. We can grow plants like uh, garden plants, or we can grow uh, perennial systems, but in general, they're tree-growing systems. And what happens is over time, as water comes down grade, it goes into that swale, and it spreads perfectly evenly across the landscape, and it builds up what's called a plume underground. It actually infiltrates the water instead of letting it run down grade. We're going to grow our trees that need the most moisture downgrade of the swale, And our stronger pioneer trees, our medicinals, are some edibles, but the stuff that can handle more dry climate on the upside of the swale. And then we're going to end up with all this herbaceous layer. We're going to end up with tons of, of mulch, either natural or man-planted, into the swale itself because we're going to get deposition. And everything's going to just be wonderful. Uh, it's what uh, Mike Gazer from the financial uh, sector would call a wonderful fiction. This can happen. It usually doesn't because they're usually not understood what we're doing when we install swales in the first place. There are really six primary functions of swales. And this is something I think is very beneficial to understand before you decide, do I need a swale? Does it make sense? Remember I talked about last, uh, last episode. This is, you know, the, the swale is not permaculture. A swale is a technique that permaculturists use. They don't go on every property, and a food forest doesn't go on every property. What's the goals of the property owner? What's the management style? But the number one goal people talk about is what we looked in that last slide, water infiltration. We don't want the water to go away. We want the water to go into the soil. The picture you're looking at right now, that's actually my property, and it's very early in the installation of a food forest on about three-quarters of an acre on the eastern edge of my property. So the trees were just planted. They're not even leafed out in this picture This place looks entirely different. The ducks are swimming in the swales. There's water in the swale. There's a ton of hard catchment on that side of the property. That's why we did the swales there. That that building you can see is 1,800 square feet of roof, and all of the runoff of that roof is channeled into that first swale. There's two more going down grade. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It infiltrates water. And when we first put those swales in, All three of them combined hold about 26,000 gallons of water. It took just over an inch of rainfall to fill all three of them to where they overflowed. Okay? And we're not going to get into sills big today or how we actually design swells. I just want you to understand them. You can take that and go to the next level, and we'll talk about it more in future episodes. But they would overflow. And you can see in that image, right toward the foreground, There is a place where the berm stops, and there's a gap, and that gap is about six feet. We put that swale in with a mini excavator, about a 6,000-pound machine, and when we did so, when we left that gap, we took the bucket of the excavator, and we just slightly pushed that opening down to compact it and to level it. And that way, when when it exceeds its capacity and the water goes out of that sill, it sheets and it takes no water or no no soil with it. I've got videos. We had a four-inch rain event. 
I'm standing right in that spot. I have my hand in water that's flowing. It's, you can't even tell it's flowing until I put my hand in it. And then you see the little bits of little spots of leaf and whatnot were going over my hand. It looks like it's moving like a small river. And it's gentle, passive water. It's taking no soil with it. So erosion prevention. People think swales will cause erosion because of more water. It's the same amount of water. We're controlling, we're slowing, we're spreading, and we're infiltrating. Next, spread. We can spread and capture fertility. I picked this picture, even though there's some that have much more mature trees in it, because there's all those ducks in there. You know what a duck does when it hits the water? It hits the eject button, right? The second that duck goes in that water, poop. And so that's nutrient. Now, I can either compost like I do that I put in my garden, but if I want this all throughout my food forest, I can make tons and tons of compost and get a wheelbarrow or an intern and go and put this compost everywhere, or I can put the swale in, and I can let nutrient be collected by the swale, and when a rain event comes, it will disperse it. So we want to use it for spread and capture of fertility. Because the other thing is if the water's eroding, it's taking the fertility when it's going with it. This is interesting. Like I said, it's about 26,000 gallons of water is held by that swell you're looking at right now. And when we first put it in, it took about one to one and a quarter inches of rain. The day we put them in, actually, before we even planted anything, we literally put the bucket of the excavator on the ground and a rainstorm came in, rained it right at about a one and a third, one, 1. 1.4 inches. And my students were running around with flashlights in the dark going, look at them, look at them filling up. And they filled exactly perfectly. They barely discharged. And then when the rain stopped, they held water for about two days and the water slowly infiltrated just like they were supposed to. This is the interesting thing. It used to take about an inch to an inch and a quarter to fill them. Now we get an inch and a quarter and you go out there and you look at the swale and it looks like it barely rained. You get two and a half inches, they're mostly full. You get over two and a half inches in one event or a multi-day event of rain, then we get the discharge overflow. What happened? What changed? The plume. The plume is what changed. We, we have infiltrated so much water into this limestone rock, it's begun to decompose, and more water goes in with each event than used to. The swale actually gets, without doing anything else to it other than putting it in and planting it, if you design it right, becomes more powerful over time. You can also use them to fill and manage ponds. So that swale is taking water, spreading it evenly. If we put a dam at the end of it, when it rains, the swale will fill, and instead of going out the sill, it will fill the dam. And when the dam has reached its capacity, it will backfill up the swale, and wherever we've put one of those sills, that's where it will discharge. Now, when you're doing this at scale, there's things you need to do, like creating secondary sills and emergency overflows to avoid problems. But just understand for now, I could have a swale that's a half mile long. And at the end of that swale is my dam. And most people would build that dam. And when that dam exceeded capacity, there'd be some sort of maybe concrete spillway. And that dam would overflow right at the dam. But if I have a sill a half mile away from the dam, I can overflow a half mile away from the dam because maybe I want to direct that water into another dam or another swale system. And I have that control with no energy, no pumps, no electricity, no fossil fuels. Yeah, I'm going to put it in with an excavator. That excavator comes in, burns a few gallons of diesel fuel, goes away, never comes back. So filling ponds, creating patterns. And I, I really have used the wrong term here. And when we get into principles today, you'll understand why. 
It's more that it exposes patterns. The pattern is in the landscape. If you if, if you watch some of my walkthroughs of this area, you'll see this swale is a very it's kind of a long kind of comma shaped swale. And then there's another one that is above it that's actually much more, much less curved. It's almost straight across the back of the property. And then there's one below it. And the one below it is this really cool zigzag, multi, you know, curved swale. People look at it and they go, well, wow, how'd you design that? I didn't design it. I took a laser level and I found the contours in the land and the land already had that pattern. When I put that swale in, it exposed that topography. It showed me what it looked like because this is very flat land. This is only about a 2% grade. People say it's not even worth doing swales here. Our results beg to differ. But that topography was there. People say my land's, my land's absolutely level. I'm like, can you put a dog dish on your property, put a garden hose in it, turn the water on, and it, it, it overflows exactly 360 degrees. Perfectly all sides of the dish the same at the same time. And they're like, no. And I'm like, then you know what? Then you know what? Your, your property's not level over one foot. You just convinced yourself that it's level because it looks relatively flat. It's not level. Now, again, we don't always put swales in, but we don't not put them in because the land's mostly flat. If it's, you know, if it's very fertile, heavy infiltrating soil with plenty of rainfall and we don't want to hold more water, then we probably don't put swales in. But flat alone is not why we don't do it. And when we expose this pattern, our design decisions become easier. Now we have limitations. We have restrictions on the design. And once we have a swale-based system, and let's say we have two swales, we have an upper swale, a lower swale, and what we call the area between them is the mid-swale. When we get into the mid-swale, we have very few decisions we can make. We can graze it mechanically or with animals, meaning it can be pasture, grass, what have you. So we can move animals through that mid-swale and graze it down. We can put chicken tractors in there, graze it down, or we can mow it with a scythe or a mower or what have you. If we want to maintain it in pasture savanna style, then we have to do something to, to, to manage the grass, the pasture. We can crop it. That's called alley cropping. So we can actually, we can do a perennial based system of swales and we can put a kitchen garden or a full on commercial, uh, farm garden in there. Mark Shepard, you'll see his property in a bit. He grew organic zucchini in his tree-based, animal-based systems until the trees and the animals and the system was mature enough to pay the bills, and then he stopped doing that. And then he went to managing through grazing and mowing. Right? So we can we can we can we can graze it, we can crop it, or we can fill it. Fill it? What does that mean? That means we take that multi-layered system, those shrubs and, and what have you, and we fill it with more perennials. That's really all we can do with that space. If we don't do one of those three things, nature's going to fill it with whatever is the most pioneering species of tree and bush that can grow in that system. And if we don't manage it, we're probably going to have a tangle instead of something that we can comfortably walk through. Right. So, uh, yeah. And somebody's talking about A-frame levels and all. We're going to actually cover that in a future episode. But when you want to do leveling, you have A-frame levels. OK. And you have laser levels. You have transit levels. I prefer a laser level for speed because once you set the level that you want and you got the, you got the other end of the machine over here spinning a laser and you get your, your, your remote end and you set it, 
and you get it to tone and you put a flag in the ground, you just start heading in the direction you want to go. And every time it tones and you're far enough, you know, you're comfortable with the distance, you just drop another flag in the ground. But I've done a lot of work with A-frame levels. They're really easy. The pyramids were built with A-frame levels, just to kind of put it in perspective. Uh, there's an art to using an A-frame level, though, that, uh, again, we're not going to dig into uh, today. But we also create pathways. If we put in a really big swale, nine feet, for instance, three meters, huge tree growing system. We're on relatively steep ground. We're on, let's say, you know, 15% grade. You ever try walking across 15% grade or driving across 15% grade? It's a bitch. It wears you out. You put a swale on that 15% grade and what you have is base. It's kind of like a terrace. It's a terrace, short, short terrace with a burn. And you can walk right down that swale and it's like walking on flat land because you are on flat land and you can traverse that entire distance. You can drive equipment down the center of that swale. You can use it as a road and it will not erode like almost all the dirt roads you see on properties, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 acres. The roads are always washing out. We can use it to create pathways. If we stick to these six primary functions in our design, we can do other things. But if we start there, we're going to make smart decisions and we're not going to put in the swale that's only there because it was in the book. Next, ponds and dams. And you can see in this image, we have ponds and we have swales. We're starting to see a pattern emerge. That's why I've selected it. Uh, it's difficult to see, but there's actually, you can see some trees toward the rear. Uh, you can see the three ponds. If you look at the pond that's closest to the center and you see some trees to the rear, there's actually a valley that comes down where those trees are planted, a very straight valley compared to the other swales on it, and that swale feeds that dam. So right where you're looking at coming out of the, as you're looking at your screen from your right over to your left, um, that that line of trees is a swale in itself. And then you see a big swale making a big curve, comma-shaped curve that's, that's also to the right side, and um, right side, right, that way. And that swale is actually pushing water into that fairly straight swale, capturing water and pushing it into that dam. There's a small swale, I believe, in this design connecting the center dam to the, the high, the dam that's high and back to the left. And so those dams fill and then they discharge through the swale. I'm not sure what's going on with the four dam. This is not a project I'm highly familiar with, but it, it's a great picture to understand holding water in the landscape. And to me, there's not much I will cut down forest that's already there for. I might clear a little path out, a little patch out for a garden, a zone one garden. If I buy a province mostly forested, though, I don't want to take any mature trees down. Maybe a little bit for some construction and things like that, but overall I want to leave the forest intact. I will do it to put water in, though. I'll do it to put in a half acre or a one acre pond because I know that the biodiversity of that water element will exceed what I've taken out in those trees. And that might be how I decide where I'm going to harvest my trees for timber to build my structure. Where's the optimum pond spot? Okay, these are the trees that I'm going to harvest. Now we'll get into some things about water access structure later. But now I've, now I've, I've used design restrictions and ethics. I don't want to take more than I put back. If I'm going to do this, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm bringing more biodiversity to the system. And I'm going to tell you, Nothing does this like ponds and dams. First of all, I know I put a half acre in. I can feed people with fish forever on that property. Properly managed a half acre of water, deep water, no problem. 
No problem. And if I have a dam, I also know that no matter how much I seal that dam of that size, it's going to, it's going to leak into the surrounding landscape. It's going to improve the hydrology of everything. It is one of the most important things that you can do to a property, especially at any scale. But the biodiversity. So I run little ponds on my property. They're 1100 to 6,000 gallons. Since I've come here and started putting those systems in, and there are multiple systems in my summer, it looks like a dragonfly expedition, just in dragonflies. Every color, every, I mean, they're everywhere. They look like birds flying through the air. There's so many of them. Last year in one of my new systems, there must have been 10,000 spring peepers that popped out of it, little frogs. What's that do for the environment? So dams are something I want you to consider because it feeds people. It provides irrigation. And increases biodiversity. And what you generally want to do with your dams, if it makes sense, if you're not going to create a flood hazard, if you're not going to pull the side of the mountain down, it makes sense to put at least one of your dams as high on the property as possible so that you can use it for irrigation. And we can begin that process of swale and dam interconnection if we're on a larger property. But we can do this in little properties, too. We can have a couple little frog ponds. They can be built out of... Uh, preformed liners. They can be built out of rubber liners. They can be built out of old tires. Tractor tires make awesome ponds. We'll get into that later. Um, we can connect them with a little swale. And we can put a pathway in and a little bridge that the water in that swale over, overlays. And we can grow a zola in our little pond. And we can put that on our garden. And then we're fertilizing and mulching at the same time. And our frog friends are taking care of things for us like insect pests. We can do this at scale. We can do this down at much smaller scales as well. But ponds and dams are the lifeblood of a system. Next up, terraces. And I like this. And we're already getting into some function stacking here. These are rice terraces. And this is, this is what most people would look at and say, well, this is a monocrop. Monocropping is bad. Um, rice terrace systems in alpine zones are one of the few systems that you're really growing a crop where you actually get more fertile and rich soil over and over and over again. And what happened is these systems were developed in places where they didn't have wide swaths of nice, flat, level, arable land. And if they tried to crop the hillsides, it didn't take very long until the civilization doing it collapsed. So they were initially done out of necessity. But this is not a monocrop. I have never looked at a documentary or anything that documented a system like this, where I didn't see people moving through that system catching fish and also eating bugs out of those systems. There's one thing called a toe biter. They're very, very popular in uh, uh, Vietnam that grow in systems like this. They're just a beetle that can bite the crap out of your toe, but they're actually, apparently they taste like shrimp. Prawns are grown in this system. Uh, small mammals come into the system and are hunted and eaten. So right there, we've left monocropping behind. We have minnows in the system that feed the fish that the people eat. And generally speaking, if you look, you'll see parts of that system where it is not terraced and there's slope and a lot of vegetables and things like that are grown. So it's not a mon Just because it's a main crop in the majority of the area doesn't mean that it's a monocrop. But what can we do with these terraces? Well, there's a lot we can do with terraces. Terraces are like big, flat, wide swales. Terraces prevent erosion when they're properly built. Terraces allow us to work in comfort. They're one of the oldest and most sustainable 
earthwork features that humans have ever developed. And while they were developed out of necessity, since they were developed out of necessity, they work. So it's just another earthwork to know. We're going to know how to construct them today. I also want to talk about plowing the ripping. Plowing, jeez, a permaculture is talking about plowing. I mentioned Mark Shepard earlier. This is a quite old picture of his place called New Forest Farm. It's one of the aerial pictures that you can easily find. That's why I used it. So it's not fully established yet. This is one of those pictures that's a little bit hard to get your head around the scale. It's not his whole farm, but his whole farm, I think, is 110 acres. This is probably a third to a half of it right here. And so the, the, the lines that you're seeing that kind of look like swales are actually key line plow lines and ripped lines. And there is some small swales in them. And there's some true swales in them at a much smaller scale than something like a, like Jeff Lawton would design. And you can see the main swale. If you look up in the, the upper corner of the, the design, you'll see what looks like some rings. And then you'll see one of those comes out and it, it goes across the road and it goes all the way over to where that V is. That's actually a single swale. And it's coming out of what's called a key point. And that's a little, too complicated for today's lesson, but that key point is right towards the center there of that V. And that's where there's a valley, and we're spreading the water from the valley to the ridges with that swale. And then you'll see there's actually another primary swale where the large tree line is that comes almost bisecting the center of the screen. But then you see this very uniformly spaced series of lines that come down and, and over to the, the center of the screen. At the bottom. What that is, is what Mark does is he puts in these mainframe swales. And then he's like, I want to run animals in between my trees. And I want to be able to uh, mechanically graze with a tractor. And I want everything to fit. And I want to be able to do mechanical harvesting. So he builds the space between those where a big full-size tractor can drive down through it once, turn around and come back and mow it. And it's done in two passes. And anything that's not quite right with those little mini swales or rips can be fixed with something called a drive-through pond, which is a little place we push out to correct for that variance. And those will fill up in the rain, and then they'll dry out. They, they Little frogs live in them, and things are great. But that that is basically once we set the pattern, we can rip and key line at set distances mirroring the first pattern. And that allows for all of that mechanics to work, and the imperfections are easily forgiven. And then what he does is once every year or two, where the trees are, he'll come through with a single ripper and just drag a ripper right along the trees that keeps the roots of the trees from infiltrating out into the open land. He's building a savanna. This is a savanna mimic system. And he's running turkeys and chickens and ducks and pigs and cows in between those trees. Like I said, the scale's a little hard to understand. That's just one example. We can use a yeoman's plow, key line plow, and we can do this. I really recommend, uh, there's a book that Mark did called Water for Every Farm, and I actually wrote the forward in it for him. And it really goes over this if you want to know more about it. But just don't think because it's a plow or a rip, it's bad. We can combine these techniques and really compact the soil. We might push in a swale with a bulldozer. And then if the bulldozer has a ripper on the back and it's a big swale, what we can do is we take that bulldozer and now get in the swale we just made. And we put that ripper in the ground and we rip the bottom of the swale open. And we open it up so those initial rain 
uh, events charge that swell up. It'll, that land will heal. It will uncompact because everything gardens, which we'll cover in just a bit. There's a lot of ways we can use what we think of as conventional agriculture techniques. And if we bend them to the design, then the design will be improved versus just wreck everything. The same equipment that can take a beautiful landscape and push it flat and, and, and ruin it to where we actually have to put in drains because it'll get too wet. That same equipment can make sure it's drought proof if we get the design right. And this type of pattern is one way we do that. Next up, texture. This is a project I was, I'm very grateful I got to be on this project when it was done. This was done by one of the people I really consider a master of earthworks, just an absolute master of earthworks, uh, Sepp Holzer. And the, the, what you're looking at that kind of looks like worms in that, that, that space between those two dams there, those are hugel beds. Hugel beds are where we take wood and we pile dirt on top of the wood and the wood core holds in organic matter and fertility and moisture to get more out of growing with that soil, right? But that's not really what I want to cover here with texture. This is another one that it is hard to get your head around. Down toward the bottom of the picture is a home. This is a, you know, a, a reasonably sized three bedroom ranch style house. It is not small. Look at the size of the house compared to those worm-like berms going through that peninsula. Okay? Those are big. They're probably close to nine feet tall at the top. They're up there. there there's, if you notice, they have a little flat space on them. That is a path. A human being can get up on top of that berm and walk to put scale into it. They're about... Seven feet wide at the base from, from end to end. So you got a seven foot width, but then you got nine feet up and nine feet down. You got 18 feet of growing surface plus your, plus your top. Call it two feet up there. You don't really plant a lot there though. So call it 18 feet in a seven to nine foot space. Let's call it 10 feet and you got 18 feet. You've increased your growing surface by 80%. I.e. you do this with an acre, you turn an acre into 1.8 acres. If it's half, it's 1.5 out of 1. You start to see why you can get higher yields. But there's more. Texture can increase our surface area. It can reduce our erosion. But there's a lot of things going on here, again, because scale is hard to see. If you look right on the lower dam, you'll see a little, it looks almost like, like it, the dam is kind of low. And you see a little like green lip all the way down the length of that dam on the bottom side. That's a berm. That berm's about three foot tall and it's planted to trees and it's creating a windbreak because the primary winds come from, if you look at the, the house and you look over to the left of the house by your eyesight, you see that clump of trees. The winds kind of come exactly the angle of those trees. So what Seth wanted to do, and I don't think there was enough budget in it was put a really big high windrow out of camera there. But one of the things they did was they put that row, that three-foot high berm, to help cut wind and push it up and over. The stuff that gets planted on that windward side of those big, giant mounds is going to be more wind tolerant. Everything else in the design is sheltered from the wind. And then you'll see other large berms at the bottom and the left side of that lake that also break the wind. And, of course, None of those trees that go past that burn, those natural trees were removed because they also form a windbreak. And so you created this sheltered, nested little area, and it's all based on texture. And then you also have all the curves in it. 
And up until this time, uh, Sepp actually built uh, the majority of his Hoogles very, very straight. There was a little bit of Paul Wheaton's influence on this design as well, especially that one that makes that kind of duck turn looking neck thing uh, at the beginning. And walking through this was amazing. As you came, if you look where the house is, you come around the dam and you come around that corner where that little tree island is in the middle of the dam and you come past there. As you, as you make that turn, all you see is berm and the tip of that other berm. And when you come past that and you go through that passageway by where that hook is, it's like you're in an outdoor living room. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is full of microclimates. This is in, this is in northwestern Montana. This place is now incredibly productive. And again, let me give you some scale. There's well over a kilometer of length in texture hugel beds there, not counting all the little beds I gave you, just those main hugel beds, a kilometer, half a mile. Of, of, of length. And then you got a half a mile times two because you got two sides. There's a mile of grow space in that little space that it's, it's a couple hundred yards. It's probably 150 yards from one end to the other. It, it's absolutely insane how much got crammed into that one little development. And that was all built in a week. It was done with a master's touch but it was all built within a week and it is still producing today. And that's how we know these systems work. We put them in and they continue to produce. Next, I want to talk about evaluating property a little bit here for you as well. So when you go into a property and you're thinking, I'm thinking about buying this property. I'm thinking about designing this property, especially when there's nothing on it already. You're kind of looking at a piece of raw land that you want to develop. You want to go through a property evaluation through the permaculture lens, and there's a lot to it. We're not going to cover it all today. I won't cover it all in this series, but I'll give you the core from the beginning. Water, access, and structure. That's, that is where we start. That's our wheelhouse. That's where we live. That's where we want to know um, how everything else is going to come from this. Water, access, and structure. This is a done problem. This is a beautiful little design. You see the access. The access is a road. The access road goes across the breast of one of the dams. The structure is located where it is. It creates a great view. I'm not familiar with this project at all. I just thought it was a great way to explain this. But you can see that there, there was a, a definite thought to the access path. That road is not straight. It looks to be almost 100% on contour. That's going to reduce erosion. But you can see the little hook, the big hook. It makes a big S-turn. That means that the person in the home has a massive, beautiful view of those three dams, but somebody driving on a road past that home doesn't even need to see it. It's like it's not there. This is a well-thought-out property. It doesn't look like a very intense farm property. Of course, it could be very much an aquaculture farm. We have to start thinking that our farms don't necessarily have to be trees. They can be native trees, almost all zone five, and the water is what we're actually developing a crop with. If we want to develop an incredibly sustainable crop, and then look what we have here. We have three dams, water. So if we were doing an aquatic species, we have a brood pond, a grow out pond, and a mature fish harvest pond. We could even design these to drain so that it makes harvest easier. Or we can just let them be recreational ponds. We can make them whatever we want. But we need to be very careful when we look at this and we think about water and we go back to pond construction. Where does everybody want to put the pond? 
We want to put the pond in the low spot because it will be easy to catch lots of water because all the water gets trapped down there and it's already kind of shaped like a pond. So let's put it down there. Okay, now I need water for my garden. How do I get it from the pond to the garden? With a pump, now I need energy. And all that beautiful gravity to work with, now I need to use electricity, fossil fuels, whatever. I need water to the home. If I'm using pond water for the home and there's no reason it can't be done with the right filtration, again, now I need a pump. Or I can irrigate an entire property with a couple dams at a high point. Doesn't mean dams don't go low. It just means we want to think about water going up high as long as we can do it safely. But what we really don't want to do, design access out of a property. I've seen it done. You end up with somebody gets real attached to something like swells and dams. They put them in, and then you end up with a kind of real rickety path into where your structure is going to be. And then you end up with a road that's very difficult to maintain because it goes up steep grades. So we want to think about leveling out our access, never design out our access, always think about our water and where structures are and where structures will go and what type of structural structures they're going to be. I want solar. Then I really recommend you don't put your structure on the side of the mountain in the north, you know, our hemisphere, the northern side of the mountain, the north side of the, the hill where it's going to get shaded out. Because you're not going to be able to do jack with solar there. Now, you might be stuck with that decision because you only own that side. Okay, that's different. We still have to think about the solar arrangements. But if we have a property that has multiple hills and valleys on it, we want to really think about where we locate that to meet our goals. You may not want to live off-grid. I'm not a purist. I don't care. I don't live off-grid. It won't make sense for me to live off-grid where I am and the property I have and the home that I have when it was built and how it's designed. Retrofitting, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If I was building from scratch, I would really, really try to go off-grid. But I'm still going to make a smart decision in the end based on does it make sense. And if we don't start with water access structure, we're going to make lots of what we call type 1 errors. That's the worst. A type 1 error is an error that as soon as you realize you've made it, but you've already done it, you hate yourself for it for the rest of your life, and it's significant enough that you don't get to change it. If I put a hoogle bed somewhere and I really decide it was a mistake, I can rent a bobcat or a dozer or an excavator, and then one day I can flatten it out. Okay, I shouldn't have done that. It cost me some money and time, but it was easy to fix. You put a dam somewhere you didn't want it to go, you got a problem. You put a house somewhere you didn't want it to go, you got a problem. You put a permanent fence somewhere you don't want it to go, you got a problem. And almost every time somebody does it and they're miserable with their decision and you talk to them, And you talk to me, you say, hey, what's the problem? And they start going over the problem. You realize if they would have started with water access and structure, it would have never happened. So it's one of the most important components of permaculture design. Next up, I want to go through six, and I'm going to go through them quick because we're over an hour. Permaculture principles. And every one of these five or six, depending on what we do, will end with some permaculture principles. Because design principles are awesome. They help us make good decisions, and they help us think about what really matters. I do want to point something out. I saw on MeWe yesterday, somebody in a permaculture group, not one I, I actually found or anything, it's just one I follow, said, here's the 12 permaculture principles. And remember, if it doesn't adhere to all of these, it's not permaculture. Nah, man, that would be the ethics, dude. Like, not every element in a permaculture system is going to obtain a yield. But if it's a, a system that can obtain a yield, it should obtain a yield. And why are you doing it if it doesn't? Right? So, and there's not 12 permaculture principles. There's literally hundreds of them. When people say the 12, 
They're speaking of David Holgram, who has every right to establish 12 key primary principles as he's the co-founder of the whole thing. And in his book, his, his book that he put out, God, it had to be almost 30 years after Mollison did Permaculture 1, Permaculture 2, and the Permaculture Designer's Manual. Uh, it was right around early 2000, somewhere in that range, or late 90s. He had 12 principles, which I think are amazing. And this is one of his principles. And I think they are great at helping you laser focus. But not everything is going to fit them all because there's, again, hundreds of them. Obtain a yield, though, is a really easy one to understand. If I'm going to put energy and effort and, and money and time into a thing, then the thing should produce something back for me. The pictures here are both from my property. The one with the tomatoes, that's a tomato plant called Sweet 100. And when I talk about the fact that I'm not really great at growing tomatoes here, I think some people get the wrong idea. We have a lot of problems with blight. Again, I mentioned last week that I, I'm really excited. I've learned about using aspirin, plain old generic aspirin, to help prevent disease in tomatoes. I'll be doing that this year. But what I've done is I've accepted the feedback. That's one of our principles from last week. And I just grow tomatoes until they start getting so much blight they stop being productive. So to obtain a yield of tomatoes for the season, I plant cherry tomatoes like this sweet 100, like black cherry, like a bunch of other cherry tomatoes, and the yield I get is insane. And I just pick them and pick them and I dehydrate them and I freeze them and I use them fresh. And then when they get to the point where they're not going to yield anymore, I put something else that will yield in there like a tomatillo that kind of does a stand-in thing for it. But you, you want to think about maximizing your yields. If you look at the picture of me standing there next to the tomatoes holding broccoli and a bunch of different greens, amaranths, and stuff, that's all stuff that was grown this time of year last year. This is, that, those are cold climate crops. We're, we're obtaining a yield from the same systems that will obtain a summer yield. We're planting things into our winter and spring climates, uh, that will do that for us as well. So we are using rotation and secession cropping to obtain yields. But we should always be obtaining a yield. So when you, when you, this is one of the ones that I actually think the person was in a roundabout way right. I'm going to do the thing. You should ask, and what do I get out of it or what does the land get out of it? The yield doesn't have to be for you, right? The yield might be for the land itself. It might be for wildlife. It might be for native insect pollinators that are going to come in and then make your yield higher out of your garden. It might be for bees, even if you're not a beekeeper. But there should be some yield in almost everything you do. You're going to put a pond in. What's the yield? The yield doesn't have to be material. It could be a garden pond. It could be a koi pond. And maybe you don't want to grow plants in it or anything. You're insane, but you don't want to. The yield is beauty. The yield is recreation. The yield is value of the property when you sell it. Obtain a yield. That should be a goal. The next one. This is one that I, I personally believe, unless somebody's picked it up since I started, I'm the only one teaching this principle. It comes from Bill Mollison. I never heard him say it. He had to say it at least one time. There's a, there's a, a, a brochure. It's 150 pages of transcript from one of his lectures that he gave in the, it was the 80s or the 90s, and it was put out by Barking Frogs Permaculture. And reading that, that's like my foundational knowledge comes from that 150 pages. That was the genius in his prime, in his peak, just going, boom, and just dropping things. And when you, you get in that mode, all of us that teach, sometimes you get in that mode, you drop something, your students grab onto it, and they haul ass with it. You don't even know you did it. I kind of feel like that's what happened here. Right in the middle of that, he was talking about building all these little ponds and dams and frogs and stuff, and he just said the forest floor is a lake. 
And he just, he never came back to it. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. And there's very few times when I'm reading something, I stop and I put it down and I think about that thing. I write it down. I commit it to memory. I go read two pages ahead of it and two pages behind it. And then I go back and read two pages ahead of it. Like that happens once a year for me. And this one was like the coup de grace of that event. I heard that and everything in my mind exploded. And I realized that in a cubic foot of good, mature forest soil, so you have one foot by one foot by one foot in a cube, a foot depth. If you squeeze that, even in a relatively dry period, if it's a mature forest with deep humus and organic matter, you'll get about two inches and a square foot of water out of it. So if we have a 20,000 acre forest and we go six foot deep, we have four inches of water in a 20,000 acre footprint. I'd call that a really big puddle. But now let's, let's understand stacking in space and time. Now let's fold it in half to 10,000 acres. Now I've got 10,000 acres that's eight inches deep. Let's fold it in half again. Now I have 5,000 acres that's 16 inches deep. Let's fold it in half again. Now I've got 2,500 acres, right? Where are we at? 16 inches? How much do you need before you start calling it a lake? It is a lake. And if we go into that forest and we take that soil and we put it on a slide and we put a little drop of water on it, we cover the slide and we stick it under a high-powered microscope, and I go to a pond and I take a drop of the pond water, especially if I'm a weedy area where there's lots of plankton, and I put it on the slide and I put it in there. Unless you are a, uh, a biologist, a microbiologist that knows what you're looking at, and I say, what's the difference? You'll say it's the same thing. They look the same. They operate the same. They run the same. And they manage the same. And this is part of why last week when we talked about zones, I said your biggest zone should be your zone five, your wilderness. Because if we have forest upgrade of the place that we're managing for humans and animals, we have a lake constantly slowly seeping fertility and moisture into our landscape. Trees make rain. And Bill Mollison was way ahead of the crowd on this. He was saying this back in the early 80s, that if we looked at water at, at, at a molecular level, there would actually be a difference in the molecular density of water. And this sounds like some kind of hookra crap or something, some kind of hippie bullshit about, you know, alkaline water makes you safe or, you know, but it's not. And science now says he was right that we can look at water in rainfall and we can say this water from this rain was generated by large lakes and oceans or this water from this rain was generated by forests. The forests are rainmakers because large bodies of water make rain. They also create what any lake would create. If you have a lake that's high up in the landscape that fills to capacity, eventually it creates what? Streams that flow into rivers and rivers that flow into oceans. So hear me out. Read a book one time. Had nothing to do with permaculture or any of this. It was about early settlers moving west through the United States. And it borrowed a lot of real stuff into this fake story. I can't remember what it's called now. The only thing I really remember about is this. There were journals, and one was from a man who was cutting trees 
for mine timbers. And he, in his journal, he didn't really understand exactly why. But as they cut the trees, a lot of the small streams and rivers dried up and stopped running. Well, you dried out the lake. The forest floor is a lake. And if if you contemplate this the way that I have, it will become one of your guiding design principles in everything you do. Because even if you're building a tiny forest, you're building a tiny lake and you should manage it like a lake. Next, create all systems by relationships, function, and surplus. This is an evolving system on my property. It's one of the coolest systems I've ever built. For those that can see it, you see a red building. That is just an old 16 by 8 tough shed that my ducks and chickens spend the night in like a coop. I didn't put it there. It was there. It was an existing structure. It was more trouble to move than it was worth. It's maybe not where I would have put it, but it worked. So I started working with it. If you look to the right of it, you'll see uh, in the ground there is actually a pond. That's about... Um, it's about 1,200 to 1,300 uh, gallons of water in that pond. And in that pond, I grow bullhead catfish, and I grow water plants that the ducks eat. You'll also see some other stuff we'll get to later there, but you'll see dead center a just some old concrete-filled center blocks that make a pit right outside the duck coop. And so every day I go out there, and the gate is just to the left of that compost pile, and I open that door and I let those ducks and chickens out. I have to do that every day anyway. I take with me a little bucket of all our scraps, if there's enough scraps in the bucket, and I throw it in that pit. And the chickens and duck, ducks process it, and now it's material that can go into the compost pits. And you can see one of the compost stacks right there with the pipe sticking out of it right in front of the duck house. Most of the material for that compost pile comes from that duck house. It's right there. Starting to see how this all works yet? On that pond grow plants that I feed the ducks. The one I primarily feed them is called water hyacinth. I take a pitchfork. I'm standing on the other side of the fence. The ducks can't get into the water. I pick the water plants up with the pitchfork. It's a perfect tool for the job. And I just toss the plants into the pit where the ducks process them. They eat them. They get some of their feed where they leave behind becomes compost materials. They go into the compost pit. You also see over on the other side of the fence where the pond is, you'll see some black tanks that are suspended. Those are ebb and flow beds that are uh, aquaponic style beds that grow plants. And then there's some tanks that are right up against the building. You kind of see one kind of looks kind of reddish orange. There's three of those. Those are four foot square. They hold about 150 gallons and they grow minnows and goldfish that get netted out at different times and dropped into the pond to feed the catfish. What you can't see is upgrade. There's a hill on top of the hill. There's a 50 gallon stock tank. I fill that up a few times a week. There's a drain in it. The drain goes into the pond. The ducks, when they come home at night, they go in there, they poop, and I'm actually putting nutrients by my own control into the pond. They use that more than I want nutrient in the pond, so there are two other drains that come out of that. They go to two willow trees, because my wife likes willow trees, and the ducks like shade, and willow's a good fodder tree. So that is a functional relationship, and it takes all surplus and returns it to the system. The surplus we don't eat that becomes compostable goes to the ducks and the chickens that make compost to go to the garden. The surplus duck manure, when they poop in the thing, goes into the system that grows the food that the duck eats so that it poops. To You see how this works. Functions and surpluses go together. Now, how do you, how do you get something to work like this? The easiest way is you make a bubble diagram and you start listing every element that you have or want in your system. 
You don't have to make pretty pictures. You write chickens. You draw a circle around it. Okay? Then you write down chicken coop. Then you write down compost. Then you write down pathway. Then you write down pond. Then you write down, you write everything that you have on your property. And then like you're in school, like in kindergarten, first, second grade, where they make things easy for you, you start drawing lines that connect them. If those two elements are in any way directly connected or could be connected, you draw a line and then you define that line. And then you realize this thing's not connected to this thing, but they're both connected to this thing. This might be the most valuable principle of design that I can give you. And back to where we started, this is not just an agricultural system or a permaculture system or a horticultural system like you're looking at. This is how you design a life. This is how you design a business. We designed our businesses this way. We went, when we had large employee counts, who is, who is connected to each other? I talked about it last week, but you know, we had, we had salespeople here, engineering salespeople kind of with them, right? But then, the true, like the project management guys over here, well, they're all connected. We didn't need to have a weekly meeting. That was a waste of time. We put them together and we integrated them rather than segregated them. But it was because we created a system based on relationships, function, and surpluses. All people in, a, in an office space have surplus time. They spend at the water cooler arguing about some shit they saw on TV last night. What if their surplus time if they actually enjoyed their jobs, was spent collaborating with the people they usually don't talk to. And instead of having a meeting that's disruptive, you had a natural interrelationship flow when necessary. Same thing. Same thing. I got to go do this anyway. So why don't I design this tightly to work? And then you see four tanks in the, in the very background there. I haven't decided to lay out of those yet, but they're all going to be plumbed into that pond in a tiered system, so water goes into one, drops to the next, drops to the next, drops to the next, more oxygen, that's better for the system. But then we're going to grow aquatic plants in there like duck potato and Chinese water chestnut. And that's all going to benefit from the duck manure. It's all going to grow the water hyacinth that feeds the duck and cuts the feed bill. It feeds the chicken and cuts the chicken's feed bill as well. And everything's right there. And that space, doing all of that, that can grow more food than you will. Like there could be a garden in there. There could be wicking beds. We could put a little garden in there couple four-foot-by-eight-foot beds, put a timed pump in there, and do spray irrigation of the garden, maybe drip irrigation of the garden, though it might be hard with clogs. We have to put some filtering in. But we could irrigate a couple gardens out of that. And what else do you need? That would all fit in a suburban backyard, wouldn't it, even though I have three acres? Why do you think I built it? So people can come here and see what you can do on a small footprint. We can put a couple trees, a couple pecan trees, downgrade of that pond, Take and once a day when we go out there to do it, go over to the main pump flow, close a couple of valves, open a couple of valves. That's going to water the pecan trees. Okay. Now go ahead and open the door, let the chickens out, put their compost out, check on everything. Don't forget, you know, walk back over, switch the valves, goes back to where it was. Oh, now the pond's drained. Nope. We have a well. There's a, there's a, a underground line. This is not done yet, but it's an underground line runs right along that fence. All we got to do is shut the water flow off to it, cut it with a pair of cutters, pop in a piece of PVC over to there, and put a float valve in the pond. Never have to touch it again. All that stuff I said with valves, if you want to get complicated, can all be automated. This is a functional relationship. This is function stacking. It's probably the most important thing you can learn about life, business, and it's probably the most important thing you can learn about permaculture as a foundation. The last one I have for you today, the problem is the solution. Now, one of my favorite things I 
ever heard a permaculture say, Jeff Lawton said, said it. And he said, we have to be careful with these things that sound so wonderful. The problem is the solution. The problem is the solution. It often is. He said, but if you're not careful, the problem can be a problem. <laughs> and the problem can actually be improperly channeled, a bigger problem than you started out with. So this is also like there are no weeds is another permaculture principle. There are no weeds, but there are plants that will overtake your system and choke out the plants you want if they're not managed correctly, right? So problem is a solution. What's that have to do with this big crowd of ducks you got here? Well, you can just, you see right to the, the bottom corner, you see a, 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 a pan of water. Those are 21-gallon uh, concrete mixing trays. You get them at Home Depot and those are they're like 12 bucks a piece. They last forever. They're designed to throw an 80-pound bag of concrete in, add some water, and mix them with a shovel. So a duck ain't going to do nothing to that. So I fill those up every day because I don't have a pond the ducks are allowed into. Now, here's the problem with that. If I leave those things in the same place every day, I will end up with completely no vegetation, compact disturbance, duck pee coals, muddy muck, and nothing is going to want to grow. That's a problem. Problem is first, ducks need water, and they need to be able to get in it to be happy, healthy, breed, etc. Right, so that's problem one, and I don't have a natural body of water I can do it with, like if I had a large system with multi-acre lakes. Fine. So now i got to give them water. So that means I have to go do it. Okay? And now if I do it improperly, the problem will get worse because I will make muck zones. But I have fruit trees and nut trees all over my property, some's irrigated and some's not. So what I did is I went to a standard procedure where I have 12 of these these trays. I broke up all the trees I want irrigated that don't have plumbed in irrigation. And every day, the, 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 the trays move, and each tray goes next to a tree or goes within something like a, a small pathway swale where it spreads the water out. The ducks go in. The ducks do their thing. They're happy ducks. They're healthy ducks. They make more ducks. They make poop. And once a day, I have to go out. And I dump the trays, and I move them to the next tree, and I fill them back up. What just happened? The ducks got what they needed. I got some exercise, but my trees got water, and they got fertilized. So now people come by and go, wow, your trees look really great. Man, I wish I had ducks and a poop tray. and all. Well, you can, right? You can do it at a much smaller scale. You can do that in an urban backyard, quarter acre, a few muscovy ducks. Right? They're quiet. They won't cause any trouble as long as you clip their wings. You have 10 trees, get two pans. You only got a few ducks. Every five days, that tree is going to get water. I, even five days, you might get some muck. And all. So day one, you know, first time you're on this tree number one, day one, put the, the pan to the front side of the tree. When it comes back, put it to the back side of the tree. When it comes, put it on the east side. Rotate it however you need to. Put some things in there that keep the ducks from messing it up. You can, Mulch with a hardscape so that when that water goes in there, they really aren't causing any trouble. You can move upgrade and let the water seep down. The problem is the solution if the designer is up to his task. And that's all of our slide. Well, no, I got one more for you. I forgot about this one. This is one of the coolest freaking things you're ever going to see in your life. This is another one that's a little bit hard to get scale on, but those are people in there. Those are people in there. That is a leaf cutter ant's nest that apparently has been abandoned, or those people would be getting tore up, bitten, stung. But those are, those are called giant leaf cutters that built that. And that's what it looks like when they excavate it to see. And if you look really close, you'll see little places where, like, there's these tunnels and caverns and stuff, and then there's, like, a big ball, like a chamber. 
And so these ants, we had not this species, but a different species of them when I was stationed in Panama. And you, you'd walk past a field, you'd see a little path space, about an inch and a half to four inches wide, no grass, like a trail, go for freaking half a mile. And you think, well, the ants are eating the grass. No, no, they're just walking. There's so many ants walking back and forth that they leave that trail. Just like if you walk the same path every day, eventually you'll make a trail. And they're going into trees like the mangroves. Uh, I'm not sorry, the mangroves, the mangoes. And they go up and they cut the leaves off the tree. And these trees grow fast enough they don't care. It doesn't, doesn't hurt the trees. They're actually pruning the trees, and the trees actually grow better because everything gardens. And then they take the leaves, and you see ants going one direction, like one side of the road and the other side of the road. By the way, we're right in America because the ants, I've watched it happen, they, 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 they walk on the right side of the path, not the left side like they do in the U.K., right? So the ants know, and they, they cruise down there, and they get their leaves, and they come back. Each ant brings back a leaf bigger than the ant itself. What they can do is amazing. And then they, they bring that leaf into that nest, and they give it to another ant. And they do this all, and then they turn around, they go back out, and they get another leaf over and over again. They take breaks to eat and drink just like people do. But mostly they spend all day bringing leaves back and forth. The ant they give it to has a different job. It chews the leaf up into a mulch. And it takes it into one of those balls. And it puts it in there. And they maintain very specific temperatures and moisture levels. And they don't eat the leaves. Not only do they garden by pruning the trees... And building this nest that once they abandon, imagine in a savanna system how quickly when those ants abandon that system with all that organic matter and all that space and all that irrigation that's naturally now draining into there, how quick trees and bushes and shrubs are going to colonize that and the forest will advance in the savanna. But they actually are gardening. They grow a fungus. They grow a fungus in those chambers and that's what the ants eat. And when you look at that, you realize when they say as a permaculture principle, everything gardens, we need only understand what microorganisms and small organisms do and encourage and understand that behavior to benefit from it. You walk into a forest. Remember, the floor is a lake, but it's a lake subterranean. And you pull back this huge layer of leaves and you look down at the soil and it looks better than any farm soil you've ever seen in your life. Nobody's touched it forever. You stick your hand in it, and your hand goes down to your wrist in it. If it needs to be dug, you wiggle your fingers, and you can shove your hand down there. You grab it, you pull it up, you smell it. And the intrinsic thing in you that is a horticulturist, I believe horticulture is in our genetics, looks at it and knows this is good. You smell it, and you know this is good. And you, you take it, and you crumble it in your hands, and its structure is absolutely perfect. You could never do it with a rototiller. You could never do it with just sheet mulching. It is beautiful. Who did it? Worms, earwigs, pill bugs, microorganisms, very tiny critters that aren't quite micro, but, you, but they're really hard to see. Dung beetles, the deer, the turkey, the dead trees that rotted and left their roots behind. Everything gardens. So that's why, for example, one of many reasons, if you come and look at one of my gardens, you will never see bare soil. It will always be mulched. Because I want to encourage that behavior. And then the other thing is we have pattern recognition. So when we see how something gardens, we can mimic it. We, we, we are not above mimicking nature. We, we are not better than a tiny soil organism just because we have a higher cognitive ability when it comes to gardening. Remember, you don't, 
you absolutely don't feed your plants. You feed soil organisms, and they feed your plants, mainly through the exudate process. So people think, I need to feed my plants, and my plants need chromium or boron or whatever. Your plant needs this tiny selenium, tiny, tiny, tiny amount of it. And if you actually test the soil when you break the bonds, instead of just testing what's freely available, which is what most soil testing does, well, you're going to find that there's actually plenty of it there. Plant can't get it. It's locked up. But the plant, if there's all these other microorganisms in the soil web, knows it needs selenium. And it poops out an exudate out of its roots. A little secretion. It's basically cookies and cakes. It's carbohydrate and sugar. And it poops out the exact exudate for a microorganism that will come suck it up and poop out its own thing that will make selenium available to the plant. The microorganism can get the selenium. The plant can't, and they have a symbiotic relationship. Because everything gardens, it works. And when we break that mentality, when we stop thinking that way, everything falls apart. Because we stop caring for the soil, we stop understanding the contribution these other organisms make, and then we try to get rid of it. Nitrogen's easy, Ron. We won't even go into that today, but nitrogen's easy. It's as easy as it gets. Last one, patterns dictate design. Back to Mark Shepard's uh, design here, just real quick. You look at that and say, man, Mark Shepard is one hell of a designer. That's beautiful. And if you see what it looks like now with all those trees grown in, you feel even more that way. It's gorgeous. That's Wisconsin, by the way. It's like zone three. He's growing freaking chestnuts. Why? He planted a shitload of chestnuts and let them die. And the ones that survived, he propagated. And they said, you can't grow chestnuts here. And he said, okay, let's see. He grows chestnuts. Massive amounts of chestnuts now. But as good of a designer is as Mark is, his design was dictated by the pattern of the land. If you give Mark another piece of land, and I've done a huge project with him, huge project, it won't look like that. Even if it's going to be in the same climate, even if it's going to grow the same food, even if the person that manages it was one of his interns who's going to manage it exactly the way Mark manages it, it won't look like that because the pattern in the landscape will not be that. It will be some variant thereof. We need to take the pattern of the landscape and allow it to dictate our design. We have our wants and our desires and our needs, and that's important. It's a huge piece. First thing you analyze in a design, really, when you're going to start from zero and design an entire system, you analyze the client first. You, your needs matter. Your amount of budget matters. Your labor matters. Your knowledge matters. How much time you're going to put in matters. What you're going to do with the property if you decide you don't want it anymore matters. But then we take that desire and we merge it with what is the land telling us. And if we ignore the landscape, that's when we start pushing things flat. That's when we start losing topsoil. That's when we create erosion. And that's what everything breaks down. And that really is the last slide. Um, I have some final thoughts. If you have any questions for me, and there's only like three that followed the rules and used all caps. Uh, I would put them in now, and I'll try to do a few questions before we wrap up today. Um, but my final thoughts on this are this all seems far more difficult than it is. And yet 
it is far more difficult than it seems. That sounds like a contradiction. But what I mean by it is if you get to work and start practicing these principles and avoid the type one errors, do little things first to teach yourself. It is such a natural thing for a human being to actually do. And, and I find there's almost no one that gets into this that doesn't become completely compelled to make it part of their life. Maybe they don't become a permaculture teacher. Maybe even if they are like me, it's not the only thing they teach. It's just a, it's an arrow in our quiver and that quiver has a lot more arrows in it. Right? It's like a quiver and a quiver with more arrows, right? And many people just go on with their lives and they have a professional career or whatever, but they have that beautiful permaculture garden and that water feature and whatever. And, you know, they, 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 they start living a little bit more ethically when it comes to care of the earth and care of people and return of surplus. But everybody that actually partakes in it becomes part of it. I don't know a lot of former permaculturists. I know a lot of former engineers. A lot of them are farmers, by the way, now. Uh, and most of them end up down the permaculture path because it's very engineering oriented. I know a lot of people that were, I, I know one woman, for instance, who went through hell to become an architect and now she does computer designs of closets. I guess it's kind of a little bit like, um, architecture, but it's not, you don't need an architecture degree to do that. I know former teachers. I know former cops. I know former soldiers. I know people that were into some form of gaming that are former gamers. I know people that were auto enthusiasts that don't really care about cars anymore. I know people that had a million different hobbies that kind of left it behind. I don't know anyone who really gave this a shot that it didn't become part of who they are and what they are because it's intrinsic to who we are. The other side of it is where it is more difficult than it seems. You can watch a video. You can see somebody, I put my food forest into my little backyard and they're going to show you their forest on its best day, on their best day, with the best lighting, when everything's in maximum production, and it's fantasy land. And if it is as good as they say, most of them aren't showing you the blood, the sweat, the tears, all the things that went into learning it. So start fast, but go slow. Maybe that's another good permaculture principle we can add. Maybe that's a Spiritonian permaculture principle, right? Start fast, but go slow. Start today. But go slow. Learn as you go. If you see something that looks like it'll work, try it in a way that if it fails, it's easy to change or get rid of. All right, let's take a few questions, and I'll see what I can do. I've only got four here, um, and maybe some are just comments. Survival tips and other stuff says, guys, learn how to use a transit level and a rod in tents to create elevation topo of your property and get started. Hillside Flow Gardening, uh, uh, Hills of Mexico and Nepal. Uh, yeah, transit levels are great, um, but they're slow compared to a laser level. The same work, like a transit level is great for putting a driveway in. And a transit level will do everything Survival Tips says it'll do. But the speed with which you can move with a laser level is massive. Now, you have a small property. You're not going to be a consultant. Spending seven now laser levels used to be thousands of dollars. You can buy a good laser level now for seven hundred bucks. Let me put a, a, a laser level so I don't forget in my notes here, and I'll make sure I put a link to the the laser level I own and recommend if you want one. But they're seven eight hundred bucks, and again they're a good deal for what they do if you're going to use it on a large property and do many projects and things like that. 
if you're not, call up some of your local equipment rental places. Um, I talked to Northwest Rentals the last time I was in there, just curiosity for a friend. Uh, and, and, you know, there's on the side of the country. I figure it's probably all rental about the same. 50 bucks a day. You do a lot of work in, in a day with a laser level. So, if it, so consider renting one. Uh, as well, but definitely getting an understanding of the pattern of the landscape that he's he's talking about is really worth doing. Uh, Be friendly farm says is holding water in a landscape that critical if you have a well with all the water you could pump from it. It's probably less critical because you don't not have water, but what happens when you don't have power for your well and can the bees and the dragonflies and all of the biodiversity use the water while it's down in the well? Right. That's, that's part of it. You will never get the microclimates from the well. So ponds create microclimates. You'll never get the beauty. Is it critical? What are your goals? What are you growing? What are you trying to do with the property? What's your budget? Like the client analysis is, is at the pinnacle, but I wouldn't say I don't need a pond because I have a well. Right. I, I, I just, that would never be a decision I would make. Of course, I love water. I love its beauty. I think it's probably the the most impressive design element that we can put into a landscape. It definitely brings in my, more biodiversity, and there's so much we can do with it. But if you mean, is it critical to being able to grow a system that will produce food? No. But to me, it's a critical design element, but that's a personal choice, right? Uh, next up, Freegan Dave says, have you used any charcoal in any of your experiments? I've been dumping a lot into my swales to make terraces, uh, putting compost and urine on top of I've, I've done quite a bit with uh, biochar. I have a little kiln. You throw a bunch of waste material in it. You set it on fire. You burn it long enough. It kind of burns itself out. It smolders. And when it gets to a certain point, you throw dirt on it, and you extinguish the flame so it doesn't all burn up. And I mix that in with, like, compost mix and all, and I do use urine on it as a way to charge it up. Um I think it's a great use of excess organic material. I think it helps. I think it certainly does things for structure and microorganism habitat. I personally feel that it's overrated. I have never seen it proven to the level that I've seen like really good compost proven. So if you have two beds growing the same thing, one has charcoal, one doesn't, and there could be as much goodness in both of them as possible, but the one variable is charcoal, not charcoal, Maybe a little bit better, but I've seen something as simple as here's this field, unmanaged field, and we take some compost tea and we spray it twice in the season. And the end of the season, the one's huge and the other one's. I haven't seen that kind of like A, B analysis show that much improvement, though. I also think that you have to look cumulative effect over time. And I think of charcoal, biochar, et cetera, the way I would think of shells in a landscape. So. I've seen, for instance, a farm that was in the north, uh, northeastern United States in New England. Uh, they were throwing chunks of shells, not crushed down to powder, but still pretty good-sized chunks of shells into the landscape. And they said it was for calcium, and the guy managing the land was challenged with, it will take forever, it will take 500 years for that shell to completely break down. And he said, then I have 500 years of calcium. Problem is a solution, right? If I put enough of it in there that a little bit is released, I don't need that much anyway. And it's acidic soil, so it's going to go faster. And that's one of the reasons I'm bringing the calcium in to help mitigate how acidic the soil is. And so I have 500 years of calcium and I have a pH buffer for 500 years. 
and the shells are free. So all I need is enough of them to do the job. And I have 500 years. I'll be dead. My kids will be dead. My grandkids will be dead. My great grandkids will be dead. We should look at biochar a little more like that. Uh, Tom says, how about a flat marshy land on a lake in central Florida? Then he asked later, Chinampa. Maybe the Chinampa is the most overrated permaculture concept on the planet because Chinampas and there's there's actually a few of them still being managed in Central America and Mexico today. They are big systems. They are complex systems. And for all the beautiful pictures of just strolling through on your boat and picking bananas and whatever, they are very labor intensive. They are the ultimate community garden. They are village garden systems. They're incredibly productive. But true at-scale chinampas are not the uh, panacea that they're painted as. However, we can use systems from them. Uh, you have flor- flat marshy land in central Florida. Grow things that grow on flat marshy land. Um, or we can take flat marshy land and we can actually create a depression and we can create a pond. Now it's near a lake. But if there is a land bridge between the marsh and the lake, we can grow fish that we have direct access to. If we were to, and I don't know what you could like, there's, there are restrictions on design, including regulations. But if there's no regulation preventing it, we could literally put in a gate and leave it open to this new pond that we can build simply by taking something like an excavator and pushing it down like pigs do. We just make a low-lying compacted area and the lake floods into it. And we could start feeding fish in there, right? And then when we want some fish, we throw the food in and the fish become conditioned and we just close the gate. Maybe we can't do that legally as far as harvest methodology um, in peacetime. But if we had a collapse of society, wouldn't that be a neat thing to have? We have fish trained to come to the sound of things hitting the water. We run out of fish food. We throw pebbles in there. There's going to be a period of time they're still coming in. And when they come in, maybe we throw a little bit of food in there. A bunch come in. We close the gate. Well, it's end of society or what have you. we got bad times. Okay? Only take out enough fish for tonight. Leave the rest of them in there. There'll be enough food and they have water flow. Right? They're, like, it, 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 there's a million things that you could do with that space. It all depends. And uh, I got one more and we're going to wrap today. Um, Mike says, what zone should wildlife barriers be installed? I'm guessing zone three. How about human barriers? It depends. Uh, what kind of wildlife barrier are we talking about? If we're in a zone four on a large system, it's probably just not real practical to be out to zone four. So maybe zone three is where it is. Where are you going to put your permanent fences? Where are you going to put your money in that? What kind of wildlife are we going to stop? You're not going to stop deer with a fence unless it's about seven foot and and not a line fence because they'll grow right through, right? So can we even stop them? Do we want to or we want to dissuade them or do we want to channel them? Or maybe we do want to stop them. If we have a piece of property and it's fenced, Right. And I'm talking like chain link or something like that, that actually would keep coyotes out of. In fact, coyotes can go over the fence. We can put rollers on the fence, basically a piece of pipe that's on a top rail of the fence. And when the coyote tries to grab it, it rolls off. They're very effective. What's going to cost more, a bunch of roller pipes or a great Pyrenees that lives with my stock? It all depends. What is a barrier? Is a barrier physical? Is a barrier a guardian dog? Is a barrier things the animals don't like? 
if we if we if we expand barrier, then we don't have the limitation of what zone. What's in the zone? Do we care? We have zone three. We're doing main crops, but what if our main crops are perennial? We can do it's like call it a zone three orchard. So we have persimmons and plums and all these things that deer like. We only really need to protect the tree from the deer until the canopy's above the browse line. If the deer can't stand up on its hind legs, because they will, and eat the fruit off the tree, the fallen fruit is a problem because it breeds fruit flies. So the fallen fruit that we're not going to harvest, it's good that the deer eats it. The deer eats it. The deer poops. The deer fertilizes the plant. The deer breaks the pest cycle. The barrier now is the height of the tree. We have to get really creative when we ask these questions and, and, and define what we're actually trying to do and why. And is, is it worth it to do what we're trying to do? Or will changing what we're doing be more effective? If we're in a climate that will grow pecans really well and we're trying to grow lemons because we saw Sepp Holzer grow a lemon in the Alps, does that make sense? How much... Uh, <laughs> how much real dam, you know, how, how much real damage can a deer do up a country once it's mature? Mike says deer came in and raked my apple tree last week, one foot of snow on the ground still. That's probably a young tree too then, right? And they're eating all that new growth and the buds that are still on it because it's high energy. You, you can, you can handle that a variety of ways and you say a tree, right? So yeah, my apple tree, not my apple orchard. So one tree, that's like a magnet. So that's another issue. If we put things in that are highly attractive to, uh, wildlife that can damage them, then we really need to protect those. The way I protect things when it's a small area and you got a deer problem, what I do with my gardens in Arkansas, I drove stakes all around them. I put insulators on them. I put a single line of electric fence line around the garden, pushed a garden, a, a ground rod in, hooked up a 25 mile charger box, plugged it in, took aluminum foil and put, well, I, I did this first. I didn't plug it in, right? I took aluminum foil and made little flags of aluminum foil all around the garden. And I took peanut butter and I smeared peanut butter on the aluminum foil. Then I plugged in the box and then the deer came. And they sniffed it. It kind of smelled good. It was kind of funky at first. Like, I don't know about this. What is this thing? And then, you know, that peanut butter smells really good. It's really tempting. Boy, that broccoli looks good. But that peanut butter that is in between me and the broccoli. So then the tongue comes out and they go over like a horse that got shot on a Western movie. They roll around on the ground and they run away. And once that happens a few times, unless new deer come, You'll see that deer move through your property and they'll look at that shit like, uh-uh, no, no, that hurts. They either get it in the nose or they get it in the tongue and we're done. We're done with the problem. And we can do that in a small area. The other thing about deer, they don't like to be contained in small areas. So if you have a garden that's a quarter acre garden and you put a fence that a deer can jump around that garden, deer will jump into that garden and eat your garden. If you have a small area with two or three beds and you put a fence around that garden where when the deer goes into the garden, that deer feels trapped most of the time. Most, not all. There's always, there's always special people, special deer, special ducks, special chickens, right? Special roosters that become coca vin, right? There's always special cases, 
But in general, deer don't like that contained feeling. Uh, additionally, if you have an outside dog, doesn't even have to be a guardian dog, and you have a fence perimeter, and a deer comes in, that, that dog's going to lose its mind, and it doesn't take long for the deer to go, the furry thing with the big teeth that looks like a wolf lives in there and hates me, and I don't want to be there. Uh, there's all kinds of things that you can do. And uh, Mike says, good idea. I have all that stuff already, and I will set it up. Yeah, like one tree, just just protect that one tree. You know, it, that's the problem is the solution. The problem is there's one tree, so everybody comes there. When we built our place in Arkansas and we put permaculture principles in, in the middle of August, the whole mountain was brown and it was a fire hazard, and we had like this oasis. It looked like oasis in a mountain desert. Oh, and all the deer came. So, you know, 20,000 volts or whatever it is in the tongue, That'll change your mind about a few things. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed it today. It'll take me about an hour to get the audio version out on all the audio feeds. If you watch this one in the video, this will be a good one to review. You can just listen to it while you garden or run or do, work out in the gym or whatever. This one has a lot in it. It's another one about two hours long. The rest of the episodes in the series will be a little shorter. I'm really trying to make this like a master introductory course for you for free. I hope you're enjoying it. I will catch you tomorrow. Tomorrow we have an interview. And we're going to talk about gooses or geese, depending on how you say it. Both are correct, by the way. Um, I have a, 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 someone coming on who's going to talk about raising geese uh, and for land management and for food. And raising geese specifically in being able to successfully bre uh, brood geese. And not only brood them so much as hatch them. I've never had good luck hatching geese. I haven't tried to do it that much. So it was one of those things that didn't really work. I didn't really need it to be to, to, to work. So I stopped pushing on it. But... Uh, once again, like I said, if you're new to me, uh, I don't just do permaculture. I do things from guns to gardens and everything in between. But once again, the permaculture episode is lining up against another episode that if you like this one, you might like. So you check it out at the survivalpodcast.com or tspc.co. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that one. And like I said, I'm going to actually take all of these when I'm done. I'm going to be put, putting them up on my new educational website. I'm not going to tell you the name. It's not ready to be looked at yet, where we're going to be selling the aquatics course and probably more in the future. And uh, I'm going to be, it still is going to be free, but what we'll do is we'll add some quizzes and a certificate of completion. You'll get to see how that whole system works. That'll help you evaluate whether you want to take the aquatics course, because the aquatics course is going to be a freaking semester of college crammed into uh, a 20-hour video course. It's going to be beyond belief the value that I'm going to deliver with that. But I think that people should kind of know the style of what they're getting and how it's going to work. So I thought, you know, since you're doing this series, why don't you do that? Put that on there. That way when anybody comes to that site, you know, in, in, in the summer when the course is available or years from now when there's maybe multiple courses available, they have something they can take for free. They can get an understanding of the teaching style. They can get an understanding of the process flow and how everything works at no cost. So I'll be doing that. Some of you have asked if you can pre-order that course or whatever. No, I, I don't take money before a thing is done. I just don't believe in it. I think you can get in a bad situation that way. Um, the other side of it, though, I may do a pre-registration, but that'll be a couple weeks out at least. We got to get that side into a point where I'm happy for you to look at, even though it's not ready. And we are not even close yet. It's a stock theme. We just put the plugins in. I haven't started configuring it, so but it is coming, and it's going to be pretty awesome. On that note, I posted a picture today on social media. It is a couple of Muscovy duck breasts, and there's a female, so they're small. So I ate both of them, both well, one breast, two two fillets. Um, 
and a little bit of thinly sliced duck potato. It's a plant called Sagittaria. I can't think of the last name. It's a Chinese arrowhead is, is the, the one that I, I did today. I got some seed stock in. I thought, you know, before I grow these, maybe I should eat them. Yeah, I'm going to grow them. No, they're not keto. No, I'm not going to live on them every day, though. They kind of taste like potato and artichoke. And when I said that, my wife said that, I said, well, artichoke like artichoke artichoke or artichoke like Jerusalem artichoke? And the answer was like, yes. They kind of taste like potato, Jerusalem artichoke, and regular artichoke all together. They were fantastic, fried in brown butter with the Muscovy duck breast. You know, if you're not following my so- me on social media, you're missing cool stuff like that. Anyway, with that, uh, also, remember, if you want to help support the show, you can become a member. MSB's on sale. It's 35 bucks. Discount code is Mexico22. That's all I'll say about that today. But we also have tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com. You can help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy when you shop online. And today's item of the day is... Well, it's the Gilmore Professional Garden Hose. And I know it's just a hose, but you know what? Garden hoses are, there's two kinds. There's good ones and there's shitty ones. There's no okay ones. If it's not good, it's shitty. And if it's not good but not completely shitty, it's going to be shitty within like six months after you buy it. This is the best value for a hose I have found. I, there are some hoses I think that maybe are better, but they cost three times as much. And I'm not willing to spend that much. I use a lot of hoses on my property. And they're on sale today. Uh, they're really awesome. And you can just read the write-up to learn more. Go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. They make them 25, 50, and 75-foot and 100-foot lengths. My favorite length is 50. Because there's not much you can't do with a 100-foot of hose. So why 50? Put two hoses together that are 50 foot long, what do you get? 100 foot. But if you don't need to go 100 foot, what do you have? You have two hoses. They're easier to manage, carry around, coil up, all that good stuff. Now, uh, here's the other thing, though, about the 50 foot hoses. You get all that convenience, you get two instead of one, and two 50 footers cost $8 more than one 100 footer. That's an $8 convenience fee I'm happy to pay. Now, I want to say one thing about this. I have had nothing but positive feedback on this hose. But I've had a few people say that they still get some kinks, because this hose does not kink unless you do something wrong. If you have a loop and you pull it really tight, you can kink it, right? If you don't you know, handle it with common sense, you can kink it. But if you get one, especially like a 100-footer of any hose, I don't care how good it is, initial setup's important. So I wanted real quick to cover initial setup with any hose that's a good hose anyway. What I do with a hose, I hook it up to a hose bib, female into the hose bib, and I roll it out hand over hand like I'm rolling it out like a wheel. And I roll it out all the way in a straight line. And if I can't, like I'm going to go to a fence or something, then I come back and it's, so it's just like one straight laid out. Okay? Then I turn the water on and I run water through it for a little while, especially if it's kind of cold. That kind of warms it up to at least whatever the water temperature is. It makes it a little more pliable. Okay, I'm not done yet. Not done yet. Then I put some sort of a hose nozzle on the end. Okay? And I, I, I turn it on, and I turn the faucet on until it blows out the nozzle. And then I shut, it, I shut the nozzle, but I leave the pressure on the hose. And I let it sit in the sun for a day before I use it. What this does is it puts some stiffness on the hose, puts it in a nice straight line, pushes the curves out of it, and takes the memory of being coiled up for what could have been six months or six years. Who knows how long it sat in the uh, in the warehouse before they shipped it to you. 
So that's what you do with any hose. That'll make your life better, even if you don't need one the next time you buy one. Just do that with it. Even a crappy hose will perform better if you do that. But life's too short to have a crappy hose. It really is. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show again. And uh, tomorrow, again, we're going to be talking about geese and, 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 and hatching geese and raising geese. It should be fun. And uh, then we got our expert counsel show on Thursday. And I've already got some great material for Outback with Jack on Friday. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you. A better way